one of the uh, one of the key challenges with this system is uh, the, the recurrent discussions on its economic effects. So we have heard a lot of debate, and that's ongoing, on uh, the EU ETS essentially pushing industry out of Europe, essentially costing uh, costing jobs and uh, and reducing um, uh, reducing profits. And that has given justification to a number of um, tools uh, on, on carbon leakage prevention uh, that are uh, quite costly. Now, today, it's uh, my pleasure to, um, uh, to welcome here uh, Antoine de Chelepretre from the OECD. Uh, he, with his uh, colleagues, has written together a paper that essentially tried to, to give some a uh, very close academic and empirical uh, look into exactly this question. So is the EU ETS really a tool that uh, is uh, costing us a lot of competitiveness and do we need to compensate for that? Or uh, are these concerns essentially largely overblown in the, uh, in the debate? And then after the presentation by Antoine, which will take about 20 minutes, uh, I'll give the, uh, the floor to uh, two panelists that will comment both on, uh, from an academic and from a political perspective on the, uh, on the findings. So Antoine, the floor is yours. Thanks, Georg. Uh, if we can have the, uh, the slides. Um, I'm going to present you the results um, of a study that we did um, at the OECD. Uh, this is also joined with uh, Frank Venmos here from the University of Nantes. Daniel uh, Nachtigal is with me at the OECD on uh, the impact of the UETS uh, on, on carbon emissions and economic performance of uh, regulated firms. So, well, I guess I have one slide on the UETS, but you don't need to see it if this thing works. You have to point in that direction. Can we have the next slide? If, if, if I can't click, it's going to be... Uh, okay. <laughs> Great, so I'm going to skip this slide because you all know what the EU ETS is. Um, that's why you're here. Um, the, the basic um, you know, data point, then and the starting point of this... Where do I, where do I find this? I think you can shout out. But if I, if I okay. keep... Okay. So I, I should stand over there? No, no, it's just that it, wasn't, it hadn't connected. I need to bring it a bit closer to just get the connection. Now it's, now it's connected and it should work. Okay, it works. Excellent. Great. So if you look at the, the data, if you look at all the uh, installations that are covered by the UETS, and you look at the emissions uh, over time, since the beginning in 2005, what you observe is a 15% uh, reduction in, in carbon emissions uh, by these uh, firms, by these uh, entities, okay? So, great, that's the whole purpose of the UETS, to bring down uh, emissions, but of course, uh, the first question we ask in the paper is, is, is this caused by the UETS, okay? Uh, at the same time, we had the, the Great Recession, we had oil prices uh, increase, so perhaps all of this is driven by other factors than the uh, UETS. That's the first question that we try to answer in the paper. Uh, and the second question if, is if at least part of these reductions are caused by the UETS, then is this having uh, a negative impact on the performance of firms that are regulated in, this, uh, in the system? Okay? And 
So what we do is empirical analysis of the causal effect of the UETS, both on carbon emissions and on uh, economic <coughs> performance, using both firm level and installation level data uh, across Europe, and you'll see uh, the data that we're using in, in a minute. Um, what should we expect? Well, we should expect, of course, emissions to decrease if economics work, right? We see a positive uh, price of uh, carbon on the market, so that should, of course, induce firms to reduce the use of carbon in their uh, production process. Um, but it would be good to see it. Um, what should we expect on the firm performance? Well, there's all this debate about the competitiveness impact of uh, you know, environmental policies. You see what's happening in uh, France uh, at the moment, so social impact, but also impacts on, on jobs, on firms. But um, you know, there's also alternative economic theories uh, saying that investing in new energy efficient, carbon efficient technologies might actually make firms more productive. So the answer is not you know, clear uh, from a theoretical uh, point of view. How do we go about uh, and analyze the impact that the UETS is having? Well, the fantastic thing uh, from uh, the point of view of the statistician, the econometrician, is that you have these inclusion thresholds across all the activities regulated in the UETS. Okay? Um, and this was introduced um, in order to you know, make the transaction costs small because you don't want to regulate every single little plant in Europe. Okay, because then they have to report on their emission, they have to measure them, it, it's, it's costly. So only the larger installations in terms of their production capacity are regulated. And that depends on these uh, production capacity threshold in 2005, prior to the introduction of the system. So for example, if you're producing steel, your capacity must be above 2.5 tons per hour and then you're in, right? But if you're 2.4, then, then you're out, okay? And that introduces these nice thresholds that we as uh, econometricians can exploit to understand the impact that the UETS is, is having on, on installations of firms because we can look at installations of firms that are regulated and find in the economy an installation or a firm that's very, very similar in, ter in terms of all of their characteristics but you know, was lucky enough um, to fall just under the, reg the regulatory inclusion threshold, okay? So this is a kind of natural experiment where, you know, around this threshold, some firms are randomly in the UETS and some firms are randomly just outside, and we compare these two groups of firms to try to understand the causal effect of the, um, of the policy. So how do we do that? Well, we const construct what we call a control group. Okay, a group of firms or installations that are very similar. They're going to be located in the same country, of course, so they face the same policies. Uh, they're going to be operating in the same economic sector, so they will face the same input prices and so on. And they will have the same characteristics, say the size or the number of employees. But the only difference between these two groups is that one is in the UETS and the other one is not. Okay? And that's how we're going to... Um, evaluate the causal impact. So let me give you a sort of graphical uh, idea of, of what we do. This, imagine these dots are uh, EU ETS regulated firms and you, you put them on, 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 a, on a plane uh, along two dimensions. The, the x-axis here is the, the revenue, for example, that they, they generate annually. Uh, the, the other one, the y-axis, is the, the size of their assets. 
Um, and then you look at the whole population of firms um, in the same <coughs> sector and the same country, okay? And you draw a little circle around each of these EU ETS uh, firms, and you try to pick the firm uh, that's closest to the uh, EU ETS regulated entity, okay? And you're going to select this firm as part of your control group, okay? You're going to say, well, this firm is very, very similar to the one that ended up being regulated, but it's just below the production uh, capacity threshold, so we're going to use this one to give us an indication of how the EU ETS firm would have behaved had it not been regulated. Okay? That's the whole idea of the uh, process. So let me give you one example, and then I can move on to the analysis and the results. Um, let's say we have two companies, okay? and these are two real companies from, from our data. Uh, on the left-hand side, you have this Hammer GmbH. These are two companies located in Germany. They operate both in the manufacture of uh, paper and paperboard uh, sector. One has 150 employees, the other one has 152. That's uh, on average before, uh, in, until 2005. Uh, one has 27 million of turnovers, the other one 26, so again, very similar. And they have a kind of similar fixed assets um, as well. But what happened is in 2005, the right-hand side um, firm, so uh, Papierfabrik uh, Heinsberg GmbH, got, got regulated, okay? Uh, and the other one didn't. Sorry? Why the difference? Yes, so the one on the right-hand side possesses one installation that is above the production capacity inclusion threshold to be in the UETS, and the other is, doesn't possess such a facility, okay? So perhaps the one on the right has one bigger facility, and the one on the left-hand side has, you know, more, several smaller facilities, but as a firm, they look exactly the same, okay? Um, and that's what happens. And so we're going to say, well, these two are very similar. Let's use one uh, to look at and look at how it evolved over time. And that will give us a good idea of uh, how the other one uh, would have uh, evolved had it not been regulated. And this is uh, what we do. This is the example with, with the revenue. So once we've constructed this control group, Okay, of firms that are regulated, uh, that are not regulated in the UETS, we plot it, um, and the, the red line here is the UETS firms. Uh, we look at how they evolve in terms of revenues across time, and we plot it against this control group, the, the green one. You can see before the introduction of the UETS, both are very, very similar, and they're also on the same uh, trend. They have the same growth rate. Statistically, we do you know, lots of tests. They are exactly similar. You can't guess which one became regulated and which one didn't. But what happens is that after the UETS was introduced, the two start diverging. And what we can say is, well, if the red firms, the UETS firms, had not been regulated, they would probably have followed the path that the green line uh, took, okay, which is our control group. So they would have followed this uh, dotted line, okay? And so the only difference that exists that we can observe statistically among all these dimensions between these two firms, the two groups of firms, is that one is in the UETS and the other isn't, okay? So any difference between these two groups after 2005, we, we, we say, well, 
that we can attribute to the UETS because this is the only difference uh, between these two, these two groups. Okay, and that's what we call the impact of the uh, UETS. Okay, let me skip this. So, uh, as I said, we looked at uh, the impact that the UETS had uh, on, on two dimensions, carbon emissions and uh, financial economic performance. This is done with two different data sets. The carbon emissions uh, data comes from installation sources, pollution uh, release uh, registries, and the financial data, I will come to it uh, in, a, in a minute, uh, it's, it's from financial databases. On the installation data, the problem here is we have to restrict the sample to four countries, okay, where we can actually, in the data, have both uh, treated, so EUETS and non-EUETS installations, because in all of the other uh, EU27 registries, the reporting threshold to be in this registry is so high that you actually only have the very large installations, okay? So the ones that are in the EUETS. You can't look at around this threshold, you know, smaller and bigger installations. So we end up looking at these four uh, countries. So the results are valid within this set of countries, but this includes, you know, various uh, countries, so we think it might be a representative of the UETS um, in general. Then we do this matching technique, you know, pairing up installation that the sector, country, and uh, characteristic uh, in terms of emission and emission growth rate. And um, of course, this means we have a quite small sample of, you know, installation that are just below and above, but this is um, an advantage, okay? We have a small sample, but with a very precise estimate of, the of what the impact is. You can, of course, increase the sample size, but then you go, you move away from the threshold, and so that becomes less precise, right? So there is this trade-off, which, you know, we explore in the paper. What we see then is basically what happened was the, co the installations that were not in the UETS, they improve, they, sorry, improve. They increase their emissions, uh, especially in after you know uh, at, at the end of the, the period when the, the financial crisis was a bit less uh, a problem. But the EUETS regulated installation stay s stable, okay. And so, with this data, we can then measure this uh, causal effect of the EUETS on carbon emissions. And what we find is across the whole period. Uh, a 10% reduction of carbon emissions by EUETS regulated installations compared to this counterfactual group, control group of installations that are not regulated but operate in the same sectors, the same countries, and had the same characteristics. Okay, So an 11% reduction, that's in line with other studies on, on specific sectors or uh, countries. Um, and it's, you know, so it means that this 15% total reduction of carbon emissions in the UETS, about two-thirds uh, are explained by the UETS itself and, and one-third by other you know, economic uh, factors, maybe macroeconomic conditions or oil prices um, that you know, also induced some reductions in, in carbon emissions. And, and these findings is, um, is extremely robust. I mean, you can look at the, the report, which is now uh, online. Um, the, the last finding, which is interesting from this analysis on carbon emissions, is that we see a clear statistical relationship between the amount of emission reductions 
and the free allocations that, that you receive. So, you know, in theory, this should not have any effect, okay, because each permit has, um, has you know, an opportunity uh, cost. But what we see is that it's the installations that received uh, the less free allocations compared to the, the, their historical emissions, which ended up reducing uh, their emissions the most, okay? So as if there was, you know, some, some behavioral, um, you know, story behind this, which leads firms to treat free allocations uh, not as, you know, an asset that you can sell, but actually as a sort of standard where you, you say, well, you know, if I have enough permits to cover for my emission, I'm not going to make any effort, which, you know, from an economic point of view doesn't make much sense, but that's what we observed, and that's also what Franck found out uh, interviewing many of the installations uh, that are in, in, our, in our sample. Uh, moving on to the impact on firm performance, uh, we do exactly the same analysis that I um, presented before, except now we cover the whole of Europe. Okay? We're not restricted by this uh, emissions data that's available only from these uh, emissions uh, pollutant registries, so we cover the whole uh, 31 countries that are in the EU ETS. We define an EU ETS firm as one that operates at least one uh, EU ETS regulated installation. Uh, we match all of this with this financial global uh, database that, that we have at the OECD. Uh, then we do this, this matching analysis, again pairing up firms, you know, coming up with a, a, a control group. Um, and we end up with a sample which is much larger of about 2,200 uh, firms. Um, again, you know, by definition of this exercise, you can't uh, include the very large firms. Okay, so EDF in France uh, is, is in the UETS, obviously, but there's no firm in France that also produces electricity and that is as large as EDF that we could use as a good uh, control. Okay. So the results are valid for uh, a set of more medium-sized uh, firms, right? Because the very, very large firms, you, you just don't have any comparators. So it's important to keep this in mind. Um, so, okay. <coughs> and then we do all of uh, what I've said before. We compare the two groups, run some you know, econometric uh, regressions, and, and come up with what, uh, the, the following results. Um, what we see, and I, I don't need to show all of this because I think I'm running uh, short of time and Georg is going to start uh, kicking me in a, uh, under the table. Um, what we find is no uh, statistically significant impact on the employment <coughs> of, these, of these firms. Okay, So we find an, an increase of employment at EU ETS uh, regulated companies, but it's not statistically uh, different from zero. Uh, same for profits, so we find that EU ETS firms seem to perform a bit better than, than, their, uh, than the control group, but again it's not you know, different from, uh, from, from zero, but certainly we find no evidence that they get hit. Okay? And what's very interesting is we also have actually very strong evidence that EU ETS regulated firms perform better than this control group in terms of the revenues that they generate and in terms of their investments. So they, they invest more in, in their uh, fixed assets. Um, the revenue, we don't know if it's because they sell more goods or they sell these goods at a higher price. We don't, we don't have that information. But we know that in terms of the turnover, 
it increases by 8 to 15%, depending on which uh, specification, um, and, and same for assets. And, and this you know, investment, uh, which is induced by the UETS, is, is totally in line with previous findings of, you know, for example, studies that I, that I wrote, which showed that the UETS um, induced firms, participating firms, to increase their filings of low-carbon uh, patents by about 30%. So there is this clear, uh, you know, induced innovation uh, coming from the UETS, which could also translate, of course, into investment in, you know, energy-efficient uh, um, assets, for example, technologies. Yeah, this is actually extreme. You, you have to trust me or, you know, read the, the report, but this is extremely robust. I mean, we've tried to kill these results for about uh, one or two years now and uh, two, and, and, and never managed to, to do so, despite all our efforts. Um, what are the explanations? One, what, one explanation for this, you know, Increased revenue is uh, the free allocation. Could it be that it's, we're just looking at, uh, you know, cost pass-through with free allocations? So you get the, 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 the permits for free, but in fact you can you manage to pass through some of the costs uh, that you're not even paying. It's possible, but it could only explain up to 20% of the effect on uh, on revenue. So. The other, you know, possible story is a story where we see some actual, you know, productivity improvements coming from these uh, investments, in particular in uh, energy-efficient technologies. We do, for example, have evidence that this stronger effect on revenue and also on employment, actually, uh, is observed for firms that reduce their emissions the most. Okay? So this is not, you know, causal evidence that this is what's driving the results. More work is needed there. But this is, you know, some piece of evidence that perhaps this is driving at least part of the effect that we're finding, which, again, is in line with uh, a number of studies that have looked at particular sectors, particular countries, and where positive impact of the EU ETS um, have been found on, on labor productivity, total factor productivity, and, 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 and so on. All of this literature is uh, reviewed in the report, by the way. Okay, let me conclude. So the UETS, uh, according to our study, seems to have reduced carbon emissions modestly, you know, 10% in the first uh, 10 years or so. Actually, we stopped in 2012 for the emission in the first two phases. But it's in line with the modest price on the market. Um, it's not extremely surprising because we have a positive price, so we should see some reductions, but it's good to uh, confirm them. Um, but I think the key result is that it, this is happening at no cost in terms of competitiveness that we can uh, observe. Okay? I'm, of course, happy to be proven wrong, but this is the largest scale study on this uh, topic. No study has found competitiveness impact on specific sectors, specific country. We confirm this with the, the large-scale uh, analysis using the best techniques that you know we think uh, should be used to analyze the causal effect. Uh, and, and we even have some evidence that the UETS might be improving the, the performance of regulated firms, which is very interesting. Of course, it would have to be confirmed that by other studies, but it's, uh, I think, a very uh, important result. Uh, and in particular, we show that it has in incentivized uh, investments um, 
and low-carbon innovation that was shown before. Now, there's two questions that are left, uh, and perhaps we can address, you know, talk about them in the discussion. One is, what is the drivers? I tried to provide you with some ideas, but, you know, we lack a lot of data to precisely answer uh, these questions. You know, what's happening? Is it really productivity improvement? Is it cost pass-through? Is it other, um, you know, mechanisms? We, can, we have some ideas, but we're not certain. The second big question is, of course, this is um, work done using past data, okay? Empirical policy evaluation uses past data. The question is, how, how can this inform us of the future, okay? What will happen when the price goes up? And of course, you can have completely <coughs> different impacts if the price is 100 euros a ton, obviously. We, we don't know. Maybe not, you know, you, I mean, there's no reason to believe uh, one way or another. The thing is, this is valid for a, a certain price level, a certain period, and of course, I just want to, you know, warn you that things could all, of course, be different uh, if, if market conditions uh, changed uh, dramatically, obviously. So I'm going to uh, leave you with, with this. Uh, the report is online, you can download it from our website. Uh, I should have included the, the link uh, there, but uh, we will make it available on the Bruegel uh, uh, event uh, website <coughs> as well. So thanks a lot for your uh, attention. Thank uh, thanks a lot, Antoine. Um, I saw um, Jostel Baker smiling when you uh, praised his uh, his tool, and um, I think that um, was. Uh, Quite an, an unmitigated uh, uh, support of the uh, of the tool that has been introduced, um, but we come to the political discussion a bit uh, uh, a bit later. And now I would like to give the floor to to Sanna, who works at uh, CE Delft, and he has worked quite a bit on uh, on the ETS and also ex post assessments of the ETS. And uh, uh, I wonder whether you can put up a different or a complementary perspective on what uh, Antoine said. I, I hope you also will be critical on some issues. And <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you very much, Georg. Can I have sure. a point of it? Yeah. Okay, I, well, Antoine, I think it was a very, uh, very, very good talk uh, and uh, very uh, insightful. It also added a bit to my understanding of your paper. And I think that the paper is a very, very useful paper. It is a very important paper in this uh, area. Uh, because I think that both aspects, so the uh, emission reduction and the economic performance, are about the most uh, debated in the EU ETS. Um, um, so um, I think that what I what I took as a as a main uh, message from your uh, your work is that the EU ETS is delivering the reduction. The size of the reductions, you know, you can you can discuss about that. That also depends a bit on the model formulation. I will come also back on that. Uh, uh, I also uh, had the uh, impression that the effectiveness of the ETS is related to allocation. You make there this, this point. And I also saw this in other research, so this confirms my point of view. It's not economic. You know, in textbook economics we always learn allocation doesn't matter. But in reality we observe, in reality of the UETS we observe that it does matter. So uh, uh, that is uh, also, I think, a very important message that I conveyed. I was writing this, I see that I forgot the third bullet point, but I will tell it now in words. Um, I think the uh, third bullet point is that I think that you come up with 
very many interesting aspects on the economic performance, though there I'm not yet fully convinced. And so that is something I think that we should discuss because I find your results very compelling and I'm very willing to believe that it is this case that it doesn't harm, uh, the, that it in, instead that it increases the economic performance of the participants. That's of course what we all want to hear, but I also have some, some doubts on that area. So first I will uh, talk about the effectiveness of the EUTS. So, uh, uh, I think that such, such studies basically started because of the very low price of the EU ETS and then there was a lot of concern, you know, does it do something or is it just window dressing? Uh, and uh, uh, I see that in the literature I, I come across kind of three uh, approaches here. So first I see that there are papers that compare it to some historic baseline, so basically they, they extrapolate some historic trends and so on. That's not very good research, I think. So that is a, a bit weak. And then you have uh, uh, quite a lot of papers on questionnaires. We also undertook such a study for DG Klima back in 2014 or 15, I think, together with ICF. Uh, uh, basically, see Delft, my organization, we are doing a kind of, we are non-profit research and consultancy organization. So we do uh, research, but not on a, on a profit-driven basis. Um, uh, and uh, for clients, and DJ Klima is one of, of, of our clients. Uh, and uh, so, so there, uh, you see that uh, it's also being asked, so did you, for example, invest in equipment uh, in the EUTS uh, to, to reduce emissions? I see that there, I'm, I'm a bit more doubtful because you explain a lot on the, uh, on the economic performance, uh, also on the increase of assets, and I'm not sure if that in all the research on the questionnaires also came about. I know that on this research for DG Klima, it turned out that when we ran the questionnaires, it appeared that firms were saying, well, you know, it, it plays a role, but a very small, minor role, and we didn't put new investments in place because of the EUETS. And that was mainly then addressed to the low carbon price. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but it is a bit, it's a bit contradicting other research that I've seen. And then the third, and this I think is the best approach, and it's also what Antoine and his team selected, that is the comparison with ETS and non-ETS. And I've seen that before, so Wagner was also on your, on your, I think he's French, but he did in the, Oh, it's German, but he did, I think, a study on France, but if I remember well, yeah. So he also did that. I also had a student running uh, at, 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 at my organization. Unfortunately, we could, she was not interested in making it into a scientific publication because I think it was worth it, but it is online, so you, you can find it on our website. And she did this for the Netherlands, so we did also all this matching. Unfortunately, we only know afterwards because that's an awful lot of work, so I would be happy to share that. Uh, uh, and uh, so we also combined it with the Arbis database. And um, here we also investigated phase two versus phase one. And we found that in phase two, we did find this uh, uh, decrease in emission intensity, but not in uh, phase one. Um, I also say that if you do this comparison, then it's always a question, well, did I, 
correct for size because in many industries, like the iron and steel industry, for example, uh, uh, well, I know the figures for the Netherlands, but 85% or 90% or of the emissions are in the EUTS. So there's only a small part of the emissions that are not part of the EUTS. At a sink with fertilizer, that's 100%. And with petrochemicals, that's nearly 100%. And with electricity companies, that's 100%. <laughs> so you have a lot of, 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 of of sectors that are very important for the total emissions, where you cannot do this comparison. So I'm interested to hear from you if you calculate it. So, so what would be the coverage of our results? You know, in terms of the overall EUTS, so you come up with econometric results. But so that is that's something to consider there. Um, I think that also in this paper with this student Eva Langeler uh, at my organization that she uh, turned found out actually when we did the regressions that the CDM's uh, uh, certified emission reduction provision in phase two, you know, uh, companies could hand in much cheaper certified emission reduction credits, uh, uh, actually uh, uh, decreased the performance of uh, firms in terms of their emission intensity. So they had, so the firms that, that, because some firms didn't, decided not to do that. We have data until 2012. Unfortunately, then the commission didn't publish it anymore because that was a great source of information for us to, to, to do such analysis. I always say when the commission is in the room, please give us more data because that makes it more easy and especially work with phase four that will be very important, decisive because of the dynamic update. And yeah, for us to, to do research, we would also need some information on the, on the production levels, you know, otherwise we cannot do proper research anymore over phases. So all this kind of research will be much complicated if we don't get that data. So then about the um, economic performance. So uh, 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 I think that, yeah, this has been done earlier with economic models. And then you always come up that, okay, so we have a unilateral climate policy instrument and we have an economic model with Armington elasticities. And hey, we have carbon leakage here. And uh, I think that this carbon leakage, you know, doesn't need to be overplayed. It's, uh, I saw uh, quite some model runs. It's normally around one to five percent, but still, you know, that if it is if it is your sector that decreases by twenty percent, that's an average. Then uh, it's uh, it's a heavily debated uh, subject. Um, I see that your study that you that it, uh, uh, turnover and assets were were, were kind of positively. Uh, correlated with the uh, ETS or explained by the ETS even, you could say uh, profits employees uh, and the other ones not. And uh, uh, I find that personally, uh, yeah, still I'm also puzzled. How does it come? Because you would expect an increase in profits because you have free allocation, you have cost pass through. That is what, what my institute did. Uh, we did a couple of papers on cost pass through econometrically also for the, for the commission, so uh, this Eco Institute we did it together. And so there we always found quite compelling cost pass-through rates of even higher than 100%. That can be explained, uh, that's a difficult topic, but I can explain it, that you can explain also economically uh, uh, by the fact that the marginal firm uh, uh, is less efficient than the average firm, and then you get higher cost pass-through rates. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, 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 one example, one example or explanation that is not mentioned in your paper, and I don't know if cement production was included as a sector, but here we have Ponsar. Uh, he has 
I think quite good research he did on showing that this uh, EUETS actually uh, included an opportunity benefit of production. So because of the EUETS, cement producing firms would produce larger amounts of, 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 uh, of output so that they would stay uh, above the uh, production uh, threshold. Yes, you have a 50% uh, threshold in production. If you go below, you will get uh, less uh, new free allowances. And that is kind of would explain this increase in turnover if cement production was in your sample. If it is not, it would not explain it. Um, yeah, and what I already told you, that these fixed assets, I'm not so sure because I did not see this in those questionnaires. I heard that, that you also did questionnaires. Uh, I may have over, overread it in the paper. I, I, I didn't come across no, it's it. Not in the paper. Okay, okay. Okay, yeah. That's interesting also to, to know if you had information that they did invest uh, uh, these companies. Uh, yeah, so you had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now or Okay. So uh, uh, I also want to say that, that uh, so still, like in the Netherlands at this moment, it will be published today or tomorrow, we've done quite some uh, discussion on uh, uh, national CO2 tax. And then the same principles comes, you know, yeah, it harms production. And what I did is that, uh, well, actually, you know, it always assumes that uh, if you do such models that the rest of the world is doing nothing. And uh, if you start to correct for that, and here we started to correct for the Netherlands, for the, for the cost price difference between four countries, so the Netherlands versus Belgium, France and Germany, on electricity and gas and profits. That was the only uh, three uh, things uh, that we took into consideration. And then it appears, if we put that in a, in a partial equilibrium model with, with Armington elasticities, the Armington elasticities would already halve by only taking the, 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 the level playing field prices between these three, country, three countries. So if all, uh, uh, if the Dutch industry is running full capacity, which they do, uh, then uh, they, uh, at the moment, they have advantage from, from the different price structure with other countries. And I think such analysis would also be very interesting to do it at the EU level, to simply compare, because always it is assumed that the rest of the world is not doing anything, and that is simply not true. So the rest of the world is also putting on their climate policies, and that could also explain that the, the, the competitive dis disadvantage from European industry is not that much. So that's, 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 I think, uh, what, uh, what I uh, wanted to say. Uh, yeah. I think it was a helpful, essentially, confirmation that you would also agree that a lot of the carbon leakage concerns are, to some degree, uh, over-exaggerated in, uh, in the debate, uh, which confirms what, uh, what Antoine is uh, saying. Um, maybe now towards the policymaker, uh, um, Beatrice um, Jordi is um, director at DG Climate, and she is the one that is now responsible for, uh, for the EGS. And uh, what do you take from, uh, from this research? Well, uh, first, thanks a lot. Am I shouting too much? No, it's okay. So thanks a lot for the invitation. It's uh, fantastic to see this dialectica uh, debate. Uh, first clear conclusion is that uh, we need uh, academic society and academic good group to support policy making. This is uh, clearly a must. So we have been working uh, together and with uh, all the good brains in analyzing the impacts of attacks, the impacts of ETS, the carbon leakage, the competitiveness, international 
arena. But uh, first thing is highly welcome and thanks a lot to Antoine and co-authors for the, for the study. Thanks a lot, Sanders, for this dialectical exercise, as I said, it's very rich. And what I can say, as and I feel with my shoulders larger because I'm here with Jos, that we were together in uh, discussing the new reinforced directive of, as you know, he has been uh, uh, the father, if I can say, of this policy. But what I can tell you is that ETS is working now, which is a very good thing. We have uh, prices around 20 euros. We have been reinforcing the directive and we had a natural answer from the market. So the market stability reserve that is uh, compensating the inflation and is compensating the CDMs and the crisis. That's, uh, and I take good points of my homework. That's, uh, and we try, believe me, to be as, as the, transparent, the more transparent that we can. But of course, you have sometimes uh, uh, data protection issues. But uh, I take good point of the homework. So MSR, the market stability reserve, will be in place, and there's a kind of psychological effect uh, in advance. <clears throat> we are, and as you know, uh, something that he was also put on the table, that is a better adjustment to production. So we have a smaller, this dynamic, that I think is a positive thing, that you don't have these big thresholds for adapting your, your production. In the carbon leakage and free allocation, that it was uh, over-exaggerated, so you have a point. <laughs> I think you have a point. Of course, I think that the measure is important that uh, we need to, uh, to, we have an important industry and the industry is working in a world. Believe me that yesterday, day before yesterday, I was in a big panel with the cement industry. Some of them and some are really in a path of decarbonizing, not yet big sector as a whole, but it has the 20 2050 roadmap that is highly welcome. But I was next to our colleagues in trade and when you hear the numbers of anti-dumping problems, trade problems in the world and the work that Commission is doing, you see the carbon leakage proportion debate there, because it's a, a much more. So I think it was a, a very good idea, the free allocation and the carbon leakage are missing, and I ask also the economists to study the effect of liquidity in the market, because this also has an effect in liquidity, and I leave this to the economists. I will not dare to analyze that. But uh, it's, I think it's a, a good measure to compensate uh, wild competition of our industries. True that the rest of the world is doing something, not as far as we would like, and our colleagues in Katowice, you know that uh, stakes are high and the discussions are difficult there. So, but it's true, we are not alone. And if I may say, the carbon markets and the ETS is also a very good instrument of multilateralism. I will try to pronounce it again and in a proper way, multilateralism. We are working with China, we are working with Canada, we are working with uh, California, <coughs> South Korea. So it's becoming, and this is the good thing of climate diplomacy, climate is becoming part of the trade, of the diplomatic agenda, which is, I think, a very good thing. So for not, I mean, if I can just mention, so carbon leakage, I take good note of your 2% net increase slides. If I got it correctly, it's even higher in the energy efficient parts of your study of the industries. For me, it's not a kind of surprise that uh, more forward-looking industries are performing better, and I consider that the innovation and the energy efficiency is part of this forward-looking. 
So it's instinctively, it's not a surprise, I must say. But, uh, I mean, thanks a lot for putting uh, numbers on the table. I will mention just the one point that uh, these days with the Gilets Jaunes in the streets and a big debate in the streets, uh, we do not publicize as much as we should the social parts, the revenues parts, the cohesion parts of the ETS that it has, at the end, an economic impact, a big indirect economic impact. So we are talking about uh, modernization fund for lower income member states to reform the uh, energy system. We are talking about acceleration of uh, optioning for some companies. We are talking about skilling, re-skilling uh, workers, and we are talking of a fair, low carbon transition. And this has an economic impact. And I think that more, and I invite the academic community to try to quantify this cohesion and social aspects of, uh, of the transition. Just uh, uh, for not taking all your time, because uh, I'm sure that there are many people that would like to, to intervene. Uh, as you know, we are in the, the, we have just launched as commission, the long-term strategy. It has been launched last week with a lot of noise, and we like that on the, on the press. Uh, we are putting on the table a carbon zero society. Uh, we are putting on the table different scenarios with more resource efficiency, but energy efficiency, renewables is there, is there, carbon pricing is there. We are talking about also the part of uh, agriculture that many times is forgotten as an emitter, but as a capture. Uh, sector. So we are putting all the elements on the table. I insist that it's not uh, a legislative proposal, it's a vision. And as a vision, we would like to discuss uh, with you, academic community and others, please. So it will be an active year of debate, 2019, that we would like to see uh, where we go. We are talking about 2050. And uh, just to say that uh, as uh, economists like uh, macroeconomic uh, numbers, and I like them also, even if I'm not an economist, we are talking about that uh, energy bill is uh, in 2015, a normal business as usual will be 2000, sorry, 2% of the GDP. In a zero carbon, we are talking about 2.8%, which is not wow for shouting of the radical. Of course, we can play there on the different scenarios, and if we are talking about uh, material substitution or upstream innovation. This is another debate. But message is uh, welcome and please uh, invited to participate, in all, not to only today, but the whole year. And as you know, our accounting, and this is what we are also giving us uh, as a message in COP, is that we would like uh, to be front runners of, on the low uh, carbon society or zero carbon society. And uh, we have been working hard in the last years to put the ETS reform, the effort sharing, the renewable energy efficiency. That, as you know, it adds up to a minus 45% emission, de facto. But uh, we are putting uh, a large societal uh, debate on the table for the whole year. So I highly welcome this study and criticism, constructive also comments on it. So thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Beatrice. Um, I would like now to uh, skip questions that I had on extensive margin and assumptions of the cost theorem, but uh, put one question back to, uh, to the panel before opening the floor. Um, maybe you can put up one slide, if, uh, if I may. Um, we have 
just discussed uh, internally and, uh, and prepared internally some work on the distributional effects of the emission trading system in the current phase. And what we find there is essentially that on the supply side, you say we have about 100% cost pass-through, so there is a limited impact on capital owners on the supply side. On the government side, we get the substantial amount of free allowances that we had, so worth some 50 billions in the uh, 2013 to 2017, and indirect cost compensation worth another 8 billion euros. So that makes capital owners essentially better off. Uh, and on the expenditure side, we essentially see that products that are affected strongly like electricity uh, are typically having a higher share in the expenditure of low-income households. So you have another regressive effect. So what, uh, what we are taking from, uh, from that research is essentially that the ETS, even so it, it looks like a, uh, like a system that, uh, that just um, kind of allocates allowances and then, uh, and then collects them back, has quite substantial distributional consequences. And I wonder how that relates to, uh, to your research about, uh, about windfall profits. Um, maybe one sort on, uh, on, on what you said, Sander, about why we don't see them in the, uh, in the results. That might be because essentially both the companies that are under the ETS and that are not under the ETS both receive the windfall profit. So we, you don't see a difference in that, but both receive the windfall profit. And the windfall uh, because both don't have to buy the allowance. And therefore, what we, what we get is quite substantial uh, distributional consequences. Um, would you have a... Um, maybe if you have a reaction on that. Um, uh, well, you can. Do you want to first uh, reaction? I, I can give a very quick reaction. Yes, uh, we also uh, draw such figures for 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 the Netherlands. Uh, uh, that was when it was being discussed if the industry should be compensated for the indirect cost increases, and then uh, we draw up such figures that we were saying, well, they already get enough. Uh, in the end, it didn't have much impact. <laughs> so when it comes to the ministries, uh, uh, ministers, they are often quite reluctant to understand such figures because they see, well, our industries, they have to pay. Yeah? So why do they gain? You know, that's, that's still a difficult uh, uh, thing to, 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 to describe. So, yeah, I think that, uh, that uh, it is correct. This is what I think. And I think you're also right that, uh, that uh, non-ETS firms uh, in the uh, panel of, uh, of uh, your paper and so on, uh, that they, uh, of course, also would have increased their revenues if it was cost pass through that would explain this all. Yeah. So it's obviously not cost pass through. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, the study is not on uh, the distributional consequences of the UETS, you know. So it's, it's difficult based on what is in the study to, to answer your question. But um, we do observe some impact on profits, and we do, you know, observe some of this reallocation. But for this, you have to go to dig deeper, you know. So that it doesn't show up in the aggregate average statistics that I showed in my presentation. Uh, it does show up, though, in in some of the heterogeneity uh, analysis that we carry out in the report, you know, by sector, by by country. Um, but but you know, again, this is you know sometimes something where you actually would need to look at firm level individual you know uh, data and and our study is more about 
can we see on average, uh, you know, across sectors, across countries, this big negative impact, and we don't, you know. Uh, so I think it's it's it's, but it's a very interesting. Yeah, but uh, what you're saying is essentially that the that the profits did at least not decrease, and whether they yes. increase is a bit a question of they, whether they, this they, control is, uh, is is really the right control for for profits in in that sense, because the price increase for products would have been for uh, for the product and not yes. for the yes. company. Yes, of course, of course. Um, but it's a more general question about, you know, how do we uh, pick the right firms as the controls? Um, and this is, you know, complicated because you want to, on the one hand, for your control group, you want to pick the uh, the closest firms possible, okay? The one that really, really looks like the UETS but happen to be just above this production capacity threshold. Same size, you know, located in the same country, operating the exact same economic sector. Problem is if you do that, you're very likely to end up picking the, the, the closest competitor of the firm, right? And so if they're competing strongly with each other, then of course you, you have... Um, you end up with other issues. You know, of course, you're capturing the net difference between the two, but any impact on me is going to affect my, my competitor because he's competing with me. If I get hit, he's going to benefit from it and, and, and so on, right? So that's why in the paper we do lots of uh, robustness analysis where we try to go a bit further away from the, 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 the uh, most likely competitor, uh, you know, pick firms from a slightly different sector so that are not exactly directly competing um, and, and none of these changes the main messages, but of course they change a bit the, the numbers that we get and I think this is through this kind of analysis, you know, if we had, uh, if we had more time uh, that, that we could, you know, better answer your question. Um, just. Well, I, I would like to welcome very much uh, this type of research. I think for many climate measures, we need much more ex post analysis, and that is exactly what it is. So that's uh, extremely welcome. Uh, so I have only two questions, uh, but uh, you know, first, full of praise for uh, what has been done. Uh, the question is whether the methodology that you are using, would it be possible to have also more sectoral differentiation? Because we know that the power sector, you know, for the comments that you made on, on, on allocation, uh, the power sector is not receiving uh, any free allocation, while other sectors do receive free allocation. And in the other sectors receiving free allocations, there are three big ones, and, and, and all the rest is uh, smaller. You have cement, you have steel, and you have chemicals. And uh, would it be possible to differentiate according to sectors? Because then you could perhaps get deeper into the allocation, uh, method used and, and also differentiated emission reduction results and also perhaps differentiated economic impacts. And related to that, would it be possible to distinguish also, in particular for the power sector, the impact of other regulations, say on renewables, which has been a matter of debate. I think the debate was wrongly headed as if there was a contradiction between ETS and, and renewables, which is, uh, which is ridiculous. But they could have incentivized carbon reduction in a different manner for the power sector. And that would be very useful uh, to dig deeper into that. In particular, that, that the subsidy schemes for 
renewables are disappearing and, and the carbon market is, is coming up. So for the future, that could be a very uh, important uh, question. And then on the distributional effects, I, I fully agree they are very important. But for us, and, and Bea knows that, uh, and I would like to echo what Bea said, uh, the distributional question has been between member states more than between companies. And uh, that was the hidden lubricant uh, for the system and entire climate policy to fly, because we have objectives that are differentiated, partly, and we have also redistribution mechanisms in terms of uh, uh, allowances uh, for auctioning, in terms of modernization fund, innovation fund, etc. So um, distribution questions have been of capital importance. With, and I think that we were very you know, much pressurized to take them in, into account, but we did very well in taking them into account. Otherwise, we would never have been able to put up a climate policy without addressing the distributional question from a member state point of view, because they are all very different. And, um, and just as a comment and, and question to Georg, if there would be more evidence on, on, on this distributional side, you have the social distributional side, you have sectoral distribution, but you have also distribution regionally you know, even if a member state is, is only a proxy for what is uh, happening at, uh, at the regional level. But um, thanks very much. I think we, we need more of this kind of studies. They are really heading in, in the right direction to dig deeper. And we will do, and, and I am turning to Bea, everything to make more data available. Uh, but there is a, a question of uh, protecting, you know, uh, uh, the, the companies delivering the data. So there is a time lag of three years, but uh, we are very... Uh, generous, I think, compared to other community policies and sharing the data uh, as much as they can uh, be shared. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, let me start with the data issue because that relates to a comment that uh, uh, you made, Sandra, and I wanted to, to raise this. Um, you asked, you know, can we well control for, for size at the installation level? Uh, and the answer is we do our best, but unfortunately, the data on production capacity, for example, which the commission, or at least not the commission, but uh, national governments, you know, likely had at some point to determine who is in, who is out. Maybe they made a guess, but this data, for example, is not publicly available. Uh, and so, you know, from the point of view of the econometrician, as I said before, the, the EU ETS is the perfect policy because, you, uh, because it can be evaluated. You know, if you put a carbon tax on the whole economy, it's very difficult. You can look at before and after, but you don't have this set of firms or you know, consumers or, you know, that are not um, regulated, okay? and with whom you can compare the, 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 the group of the, the treated, if you want. With the EU ETS, we have this group. We have this group which is in, this group which is out. So you can do evaluation, but we still locks, lack some uh, some of the data. So this is a call for you know making more data available and and thinking of making this data available when the policies are being discussed. You know before even before their implementation. Um, so thinking of the ex post evaluation that you just you know mentioned at the uh, policy, you know, discussion stage before it gets in. So how can we make sure that researchers or the OECD, you know, in a few years will be able to make these sorts of analysis? I think that's a very important point. Um, so on the sectoral differences, you know, this is the launch of the study, so uh, it was not out before, you couldn't see it. Um, but 
it is in the paper. We, we have some analysis at the sector level. We have some specific analysis, uh, for example, of all the sectors that are considered at risk of competitiveness, so that receive more, uh, that keep receiving you know, free allocation, whereas the others are moving to uh, auctioning. So we do this kind of heterogeneity analysis. Now, um, there is a limit to what you can do because of the size of the sample. You know? Uh, we can't look at the cement industry in France uh, because then you're down to you know five or ten firms in the sample and, and there's nothing you can do statistically speaking. But we do have across Europe uh, analysis at the sector uh, level. And the impact of other policies, so that, that's a very yeah, interesting um, question for the future. We, we haven't done it here. The, what, the only thing we've done here is try to control for them at, as best as we could. So by picking firms in the same country and sector, we make sure they you know, do face the same additional complementary policies like R&D policies or feed-in tariffs. And so that's how we can isolate the impact of the UETS. But the next uh, question would be now, what is, how does the impact of the UETS differs you know, when combined with different policies? you know, with uh, a more aggressive and more ambitious uh, research or innovation support policy, for example. Uh, and this is something that, that can be done, uh, but it's not in, in there for now. Take two more questions. Yeah, uh, good afternoon. My name is Stefan Tobias of CR, Community of European Railways. Uh, I'm interested in the ETS, uh, both on a personal level, but also professionally, because railways, uh, which is not w very well known, are indirectly affected by the ETS as one of the biggest electricity consumers in, in many countries. My question refers to this observation, or this, this outcome of the study, uh, that uh, being in the ETS uh, apparently helps you growing your revenues and assets, and I'm wondering whether there might not be a very simple and natural explanation for that, namely when you look at those that were not in the ETS um, because they were just under that threshold. Uh, and if you consider that their assets and their revenues are probably uh, quite closely correlated to this this uh, watt or, or, or terawatt threshold, don't they uh, do, do they not have an incentive to stay small in order to avoid being included in the ETS in future? I, I don't know the rules exactly, but I think it was always a possibility for for the rule setters to say, uh, uh, okay, uh, you have not been classified in the ETS in 2005, but now you have grown, so you will be included and I think this is a very natural explanation and because of that correlation between um, uh, revenues and assets to this uh, threshold value I also think that this charge, uh, chart Antoine that you showed uh, where um, assets and um, uh, and revenues seems to be quite randomly distributed uh, for whether you're in the ETS or not. I think that's not quite plausible. I would expect those in the ETS to have much higher, on average, much higher assets, much higher revenues, and those outside the ETS because they have been considered too small to have smaller assets. So this chart, I think, is probably a little bit misleading. It's not. I, I need to react immediately. <laughs> um, 
Yes, so, uh, so the first point is excellent and I'll come back to it, but on, on the last one, uh, this is of course by construction that we have uh, revenues that are rent that look like uh, they're you know, evenly distributed before, between the EETS and the non-ETS. This is after we do these matching techniques where we restrict the sample to... Yes, yes, of course, because before, of course, the ETS firms are way, way larger, way larger. And then we restrict the sample to this uh, set of firms, you know, around this, this threshold, basically. And then, of course, by construction, this appears totally, you know, random, and then we, we, we can do our little uh, analysis. But, um, no. Um, on your point, I think it's, it's a very valid uh, point. We, what I can say is that we observe very few uh, entry into the, the UETS. Uh, we're looking at this uh, at the moment uh, with Funk at the installation level. These are not sectors where you see a lot of you know, entry of new, um, new installation that were small and, uh, and, and, and suddenly get bigger, you know, say the steel or the cement sector. These are sectors that are quite uh, struggling and that there's no, um, there's no you know, real growth of these uh, sectors. It might be possible in some uh, sub-sectors, uh, of course. Um, but we cannot exclude that this is, uh, you know, this partly explains at least the impact on, uh, on, on assets, uh, for example. But you can still expand by uh, building a new uh, plant, which is small enough to be below the threshold, because you know, now we know the rules. So you, you, know, you might have an incentive not to increase the size of your plant, but you can totally you know, build another one across the road, which, is, you know, which has a production capacity that's below the threshold. So that, um, Frank, you want to add something? Yeah, if I can. So I had one interview with somebody I had one interview with a small brick producer that entered the ETS because he uh, built a new kiln. Um, he, he really didn't care because they, there is free allocation and so being inside the system is not such a big issue uh, compared to the decision to remain small forever. Uh, he, he really didn't care. However, um, I think that there might be uh, incentives for those who are in the system to have higher volume because of the way how free allocation is updated. So it was, uh, has been talked about already for the cement, but this is a very general rule. So the free allocation in um, the third phase depends on volume in the second. And again, the second phase depends on volume in the first. And so some companies may say, oh, let's not uh, produce too low volumes because that might be um, uh, not interesting for our future free allocation. There are many theory paper, papers explaining this mechanism and, and, and showing the possible effects if companies are completely um, rational. Thank you. Peter Bocek with the European Chemical Industry. Very interesting study. Thank you for that. And I can only join in to what Joss said about that we need more of that. Um, with regard to the comparison between the populations of plants uh, that you have 
uh, done. Um, you have ETS installations and you have non-ETS installations. And you come to the conclusion, well, um, if you look at the performance uh, of the non-ETS, then you can see what would have happened to the ETS installations if there was no ETS. And I think that is a little bit, uh, um, maybe a, a stretch too far, because then you could also turn around and say, well, would they all have been in the ETS? They would have all done better. And that is, um, I think that is um, uh, a bit um, positive. I think uh, the reality is somewhere in between because the ETS installations, they receive free allocation. And in, in most of the countries that you have shown, they, uh, many of them will also receive a compensation for indirect costs. That means for costs uh, from the uh, carbon content in the electricity they purchase. Um, that means that they, uh, the ETS companies might have a slight advantage indeed in comparison to non-ETS because they pay the same electricity price in principle, but they don't get compensation for that. So that could also explain a little bit a difference. Um, what would interest us, of course, as a big sector with very large installations, <clears throat> I think we are the second or third largest emitter under the ETS, what would be relevant for us would be a comparison with outside the EU, more than with inside, because that is the, why we have all these um, um, carbon leakage provisions, of course. Uh, we, we have to look what happens outside of Europe, what, what does the investment, what does the profitability do with our competitors outside of Europe. And uh, that would be maybe the next study of the OECD looking at similar installations with similar profiles and products and processes. How did, did it um, well affect ETS installations uh, in the EU in comparison to outside? That would be a great uh, thing we would uh, definitely support. Thank you. Just, just to add a couple of comments is that in the new uh, entrance, new uh, installations in the system, we talk about small emitters, but we need to distinguish the small or very small. As you know, it come in that we have a difference. The small emitters, you need national equivalent measures. So you had another system under your country, and you come in the ETS. So there's no jump there. Only the very small emitters are excluded from the ETS, just a clarification. And the second one is regarding to the, the trains. And it's our colleagues in DG Move are doing an interesting work on comparison of different modes of transport when, as you know, of course, a, a train, you have electricity bills and you have aviation or maritime with uh, clearly taxation. So and this is uh, also as, uh, coming to the debates more and more in Europe with the uh, Gilets Jaunes. I come back to that. But it's an interesting work. And also in the analysis of the energy and interaction with other policies, I think that uh, interaction with energy should come to the upscaling, I mean, the investment part of renewables, but also the marginal cost impacts. That is uh, very interesting when we talk about 2050. So how is reducing the possible marginal cost and another way increasing the energy? So it will be a balance there. Just uh, my comments. Hello, uh, my name is Kenny Donu. I represent Eurometal, so non-ferrous metals production, as aluminium, zinc, nickel, etc. As a background, we're very electro-intensive as opposed to carbon-intensive. Um, I just have 
three comments and one question. Um, well, firstly, thanks for the study. I agree with uh, what Peter was saying. The more kind of academia-based studies, the better. My first comment is just on the, the price used. Um, obviously, we've had a low carbon price to so far until recently. You know, you're comparing apples with pears when you compare five euro a ton, six euro a ton, to what we have today, which is what twenty euros thirty-five cents versus thirty euros a ton. When I speak of my sector, we've seen at a price of five euros a ton. That's basically four percent of production costs for primary aluminium. When we go to 30 euros a ton, which is very feasible given what we see with the MSR, you're looking at 20 to 25 percent cost. Yeah, that's a huge difference. So I would just, just flag that. Second thing you touch on your study is the the ability to pass on the the cost to the customer. I can only speak for for my sector. You know, I don't have the the intellectual capacity to analyze the whole ETS. But for our sector, we're what you refer to as a commodity and a price taker. So that means is you've basically aluminium, there's one price that day, uh, you go to London Met Exchange, you buy one ton of aluminium. The regulatory costs of production have to be embedded in that price. So we cannot pass on any cost to the customer because it's a global marketplace. So for ourselves, this idea that we can pass on the cost to a customer doesn't really exist. Yeah, because we're a commodity, a price taker. Uh, third thing is just on distribution effects, which, which Josh uh, touched upon. One thing I think will be interesting to, to follow going forward, as linked to the discussion on 2050 now, one of the, there was kind of different pathways analyzed, and one of them was this idea of electrification. So we talked about two big, big sectors, especially steel and chemicals. They can try and electrify their process, and that will, you know, we need two revolutions. Firstly, industry electrifies, and secondly, power generation decarbonizes. That will get us where we need to be there. But when we look at distribution effects, we really need to look at indirect cost of the ETS and who pays. Because as we know, for the electricity sector, it's regional. For industries such as ours, we're globally competing. And as we decarbonize electricity, the indirect cost of the ETS will remain, and we need to find a better solution there. My very last question, and it's maybe just a, a bit provocative, but um, we talk a lot about other regions and they face similar carbon costs. Could you give an example of anywhere else in, in the world where, for example, for aluminium production, they face an indirect carbon cost, so basically higher electricity prices due to carbon, because we don't see that. We don't see it in places like California. It doesn't exist. Places like Toronto in, uh, in Canada, it doesn't exist. So I just, that was just my question, because we talk a lot about other regions are coming forward with new schemes. For us, that's great. But today, in 2018, who, is, who has come forward with these schemes and who of the producers outside Europe faces the same cost? Yeah, I can, I can reply. Frank, did you want to react? Yeah, I was asked about these interviews and, and how, uh, how uh, my interviews can be in line with the results. So my, my research, this was another research, was on the energy efficiency gap. So this is this hypothesis that in companies there are uh, potential investments in energy efficiency that are highly cost effective and they're not uh, they're not realized and so indeed in, men, in almost all companies that I interviewed and probably those who are uh, from the industry here would recognize that the typical rule of thumb for energy efficiency measures is payback time of three years four years we can still handle it but five years that's that's not enough 
And that's like a puzzle for economic, economists because it, it, it boils down to if we don't have 20% return, we don't do the investment. But the, on average, the, the, the return on investments is much lower. And so um, one of the theoretical explanations to, ex to, get, to get this um, observation in, in, in theory is that there is real option value. So if you invest, you decrease um, uh, your uh, flexibility for the future. You have these investments, they are reversible. And you should take this into account and therefore this rule can be justified. Um, but it also means that um, if you are faced with a uh, policy um, and you don't know how the price is going to evolve and you know that innovating towards lower carbon is a slow process, you want to start early. That's also the logic of option value. So if I asked uh, companies, was like uncertainty regarding the price something that motivated you to uh, do abatement inside the company rather than just buy uh, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the allowances, then most of the managers said yes. We, we want to make sure we are not a laggard. Basically, it creates the risk of being a laggard and the irreversibility of being a laggard in energy efficiency. And so that's why uh, even under low prices, you can see some uh, people, uh, companies start working more, being more motivated around energy efficiency. And there is a paper Carraro Di Mario, uh, it's not uh, yet out, but I, I saw a presentation last week. He, he looks at the effect of the ETS on how companies move to the energy efficient frontier, and the effect is very big, confirming the storyline I just uh, told you. So um, that's one of the intuitions that, that may uh, explain part of the results. Um, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, some uh, few few reactions to, to questions. Um, so can we compare the um, installation with installation outside Europe? Uh, yes, we can if uh, we have the, the data, no problem. The, of course, the issue there is, you know, you're comparing installations that have, are facing completely different policies, you know, national policies, perhaps input prices and so on. So. So it would be a different exercise in, in, in the sense that you can't really you know, treat them as a control group of any sort. It's more, you know, can we see, or, or at least you, well, you would have to control very well for the differences in these different uh, regions. Um, but you could, uh, in, principle, uh, in principle, do, do, do this. Um, the, you know, this leads me to, to, to the other point, and, and it's a general uh, remark about the study. Um, in the study, what we do is we, we really look at the impact that the UETS is having on the, on the, on the regulated entities, the ones that are in the UETS, you know, that are listed if you go to the uh, registry website as part of the UETS and who have to surrender allowances. But in, in a sense, everybody is treated, I mean, because, you know, many firms have to now pay higher electricity prices. And so the UETS is having an effect much beyond this set of uh, entities that we analyze in the paper. Um, and those, those are not uh, analyzed in the study. You know? So if you're just facing higher electricity prices, but you don't, you don't 
have to surrender allowances, you might also have an effect, and we haven't uh, analyzed this. Okay, so it's 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 partial in this way. It's of course it's focused on what is visible, you know, these uh, set of regulated entities and firms, but there, there could be an effect beyond it which we're not uh, capturing, and which is uh, much more much more difficult to uh, capture. Um, I I don't know. What the specific, you know, policies are in place in other regions, uh, in your uh, sector. My, but what I, what I think is these, you know, they, the other regions are putting some, you know, policies or, or measures, and um, they might not be as stringent for now, but they might catch up in the future. And if you, you know, if you think. Um, you know, that in, in 10 or 20 years, uh, being the most energy efficient will actually give you a competitive advantage. You know, one question that we have, and, and I don't have an answer, is, you know, whether the fact that the EU was the first in, in pushing these kind of policies, you know, is actually good for your sector in, in, in this future. Well, you know, because it induces this energy efficiency improvement, which later on will make you a sort of, you know, global leader having, you know, developed these technologies to face these European policies? That's a question that I would like to be able to answer. There's, there's not much empirical evidence, actually, on this sort of, you know, first mover advantage and so on. Uh, apparently, you don't seem to believe this very strongly, but... Uh, no, no, I would just say, as a, as a sector, I'll just, let me back, I'll say, as a sector, kind of what you have is, as I said, you have one price, and we all compete globally to produce it as efficiently as possible. And electricity is 45 percent of your cost so we compete to be as efficient as possible and that's that's not linked to ets not, it's not linked to regulation it's linked to cost eh? so that's why we will we will do it like that eh? so that's that's what i would say that's that's reason inherent incentive to be energy as efficient as possible I think that the, the argument on indirect electricity costs are, is valid, but let's not exaggerate. Uh, it would be a good study for OECD and IEA to know what the electricity prices are that companies pay all over the world. We don't know that, and that's not being disclosed at all. And we know that this sector has long-term contracts. There are nuclear power stations or hydropower stations built next to the to, 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 to the facilities that you are referring to, while in other constituencies like like in Poland, for example, where coal is the predominant source, there you can really talk about an, an important indirect effect. But uh, so differences are there, and generalization should be taken with a lot of caution. In particular, because there is in some countries a very generous compensation for indirect electricity costs. And we could even start quarreling if we have more international data, whether that is not becoming a, a source of competition distortion, not only inside Europe, but also across the world. So a little bit of caution that we are not bringing out the indirect uh, electricity costs as, as, as something that is uh, looming in the horizon as, as very difficult. 
because we know that the reality of electricity markets and the exceptions to it, which is the problem that our colleagues from DG Ener uh, uh, are struggling with when it comes to electricity market design and, and long-term uh, contracts are uh, you know, facing too. But I, I just wanted to have a final remark, if I may, that is on, on prices, I think that a good subject for analysis would be price expectations. So we had a long period of low prices, but companies had price expectations and they used shadow prices internally in the company. So that is equally important that over time, our companies have been anticipating a price of, say it, 20, 30, 40 euros. And, and so the spot price is very different from the price expectation that may drive investment decisions and uh, investments in certain technologies. And I think uh, future research could also uh, usefully deal with this kind of uh, things, and in particular when interviews are being made to, uh, to companies. Sorry to have jumped up, but yeah. I'll be short, but just a very quick reaction on the indirect costs. Um, it's true we have different electricity markets all over Europe, but Sorry on that. Um, so, for example, if I compare uh, aluminium production, you have an aluminium producer in Iceland or in Norway. We have a, a member for, from Norway here, from Norsk Hydro. In Norway, it's hydro-based electricity, that is true. But we pay an indirect carbon cost based on the marginal. We all know electricity markets is the marginal pricing scheme, and the cost is based on the marginal. So, in Norway, you pay usually based on Danish coal. The, the pass-through rate, and according to the Commission, is, is 0.76. What that really means is that for every one euro increase in the ETS price, there's a 76 cent pasture rate in the electricity price. That's a Norway, and that's to do with the electricity market dynamics, okay? In Iceland, you have no indirect carbon cost. I'll acknowledge that because it's not connected with the European grid. So even when you have largely decarbonized electricity, given the electricity market dynamics and the margin pricing scheme, you still face a high indirect cost. So that was just something I just wanted to, to correct. I think we, uh, we give a last round to the uh, to the panel, and then we can discuss uh, bilaterally to uh, to stay in time. Um, yeah, I, I, there are two points that I would uh, like uh, to uh, to raise uh, at this moment. Uh, first, uh, on the on the on the cost pass through. Uh, well, I've been studying this like over ten years at the moment, and I think that we conceived uh, two important studies that both were positive on the cost pass through potential uh, uh, of uh, individual companies. And in our, uh, at a certain moment, we also drafted the paper why individual companies say that they don't pass through costs, because that is perfectly possible. Because uh, if you look at international quoted prices, like, like on, the, on the, we didn't uh, investigate uh, aluminium, but we investigated, for example, steel prices. Uh, then we figured out that we could trace their components of CO2 prices in these international quoted prices. So it is very uh, likely, I would, would love to study this for the aluminium sector as well, that in the London Metal Exchange, this price quotation already contains a CO2 cost component. That is what I would expect as economists, because I would expect that, okay, uh, so, so there is a situation where a certain region that is an important supplier uh, in this market faces uh, additional costs. It will pass them through to the, to the consumers, and that will end up in this, in this London uh, 
metal exchange uh, stock price. So, uh, and indeed, uh, companies in Iceland, they, they will get a windfall profit from this. So that, that is the question. Now, is it unfair that they get a windfall profit? Should we correct for this? That is a kind of a discussion. But to say, well, it is not in the price, I didn't. I investigated the weakest point was on cement prices, and there it's very difficult because these are not internationally quoted. So then you get a kind of constructed price index. So that is my, my thought that I give to the floor, and I'm sure that the definite answer will not be set on this, and it will not be set today. So we, we, we will continue with that in the future, I think. And then the, the other thing I would like to say to Frank, so I'm very interested about your interviews, that so they figured out this, this well, companies did take into account the ETS, and they were even acting uh, a bit proactive. Uh, and that is interesting, because I also see, and I think that it's also because these were investigations that were done recently. And when we did our research on questionnaires, that was in 2000. 12 or 13. So that's quite a long time ago. And I see indeed that within companies, I see that there has been a, a change in attitude towards carbon pricing. I know that many companies, like Unilever for example, they, they have a carbon price internally of 30 euro a ton, and that has to be uh, figured out in investment decisions. Otherwise, uh, you cannot get improve, approval. And there are many more companies that have such a strategy that they have an internal CO2 price. So probably it's also that times have been changing, you know, so I, I fully believe your results, but it's interesting because it's like, like five years ago, you wouldn't, they wouldn't say that it was important. Yeah. Just uh, my conclusion is uh, we need an academic debate. It's a very sign of a very healthy society. Second, ETS is working and uh, the new phase is ambitious and it's uh, accurate, like in areas like production, uh, challenging and forward-looking like the innovation funds. So it's working with a more ambitious quarter reduction per year. Third is that CTS is, uh, is a very good instrument for multilateralism. We have more than 75 countries in the world with CO2 price signals, more than 75. And, of course, different level of ambitions and different level of internalization, but this is the reports we get from NDCs from uh, uh, Paris. We are in the times of the COP, so we need to be serious if it's just a song on a music or we really want a forward-looking society. So these long-term signals are very important. Engagement with the industry is key and with the whole society. So very interesting times, this uh, one year devoted to long-term strategy. Yeah, you, you say the, the ETS is, is working. Um, certainly, it's not been the, the disastrous impact on the industries that some were you know, saying before it was introduced. I think that's what this, uh, this, this report shows very clearly. Um, and it's also improving, I think, you know, by constantly learning from you know, not only this study, but Georg did some work on the ETS. Many other you know, academics are, are working on this. And I think this is a beauty of this system, which is that it's constantly, you know, evolving and tries to take these, you know, results into account by moving away from, from free allocations based on grandfathering, for example, which I think was critical from a political acceptability perspective at the beginning, and now it's, it's moving away. So I, I like this feature, this, this flexible, you know, feature uh, of the UETS. Just want to conclude by saying that 
I was the, f the first to be surprised by the results that, that we find. So uh, we did not expect them, which is why we spent so much time trying to destroy them with, with, no, with no luck. But I, I take a lot of reassurance from the fact that, you know, the few uh, industry representatives that, that were in the room today didn't jump and say, hey, no, you know, it's all wrong. The ETS is destroying us. Uh, and we're not reducing any uh, emission at the same time. So uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I take we didn't get it uh, totally, uh, totally wrong. Well, okay, so thank you uh, again very much, everyone, for, for being here today. Okay. And uh, I would like to close by, uh, by saying that uh, what I find impressive about ETS debates is that it's compared to, to other fiscal instruments, it's still a relatively small instrument. And if you look into the academic literature that is out there, into, uh, into the bright minds that come to, uh, to such discussions and, uh, and, and present and discuss in, uh, in this room, it's quite impressive how much attention is being paid on, uh, on, on this very instrument. And I think that shows that with kind of Europe did a big service by proposing and promoting such an instrument that is now in some other, uh, other legislations are essentially benefiting from all the research that has been done around that. And with the constant improving of the ETS and the, uh, the academics following uh, when they get this data three years later to, to assess the whole thing, uh, I think we, we can continue to move forward. Thank you all for, uh, for coming here, joining us for a debate that uh, switched between technical and political uh, issues. And I hope to, to see you soon here again at another event on Energy and Climate. Thank you very much. Thank you.